Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Today's episode is Macroeconomic Assumptions, Mostly Stable, Mostly Moderate, and is for institutional and professional investors. I'm Maddie Desner, U.S. Head of the Investment Specialist Team for Multi-Asset Solutions Group. With me today are Michael Hood, Global Strategist for our Multi-Asset Solutions Group, and Dr. David Kelly, Chief Global Strategist and Head of Global Market Insights Strategy, both within J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Today's episode is the first in a series about J.P. Morgan Asset Management's Annual Long-Term Capital Markets Assumptions, or LTCMAs. The LTCMAs are our long-term forecasts encompassing 50-plus asset and strategy classes that we've released annually for 22 years in 13 base currencies. Along with the assumption tables, contributors, including our guests, add deeply researched commentaries on the most pressing themes impacting our assumptions. Today, we consider one of them, macroeconomic assumptions, mostly stable, mostly moderate, authored by Dr. Kelly and Michael Hood. These macro assumptions are important building blocks underlying all the 2018 LTCMAs. And as the title says, you project mostly stable global growth and moderate inflation around central bank targets, barring any significant surprises. Let's explore your forecast in more detail. Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence. Glad to be here. Great to be here. Why don't we start by talking generally about the process of developing the long-term capital markets assumptions. Michael, first to you. Give us a sense of what the process looks like. The long-term capital market assumptions basically rest primarily on views about what the economic environment is going to look like over the course of the next 15 years or so. And so the first step in the process each year is to develop these macroeconomic assumptions for the major economies that are within our purview. And so what we're trying to do here, given that the time frame is 15 years, we're abstracting from current cyclical developments. When we make near-term forecasts for what's going to happen to the U.S. or any other economy, we're primarily focusing on the dynamics of demand, what's happening with consumer spending, what's happening with investment spending, and so on. But those things wash out over the long term. And really what we're trying to get at over the course of this longer horizon is how are these economies' productive capacities growing and expanding over this long term? We're really focusing on those slower-moving processes. And really what we're getting at here is the supply side of the economy. And so when we think about developing these longer-term forecasts, really what we're talking about is What's going to be the growth rate of the labor force? How does the human capital stock of the economy evolve over that time frame? What's happening with physical capital, meaning business investment? How does that relate to the growth rate of the labor force? And then we're also thinking about technological change, which ebbs and flows over time. And so what we're doing then is essentially putting those things together. Those are all of the things that you're putting into each of these economies and the way that they combine really determine the way that the economies will track over this 15-year horizon. We've taken some of those factors into the current assumptions and looked at, maybe let's hop into the U.S. and look at our forecasts there, which have been marked down from this past year. So our assumption there is 175%, slower than prior years, but stronger than our expectation for growth in the U.K. and Japan. So David, give us a sense of what you were thinking about there when we created that. I think, as Michael says, the key is to recognize in the short run 
the economy is driven by demand and in the long run it is determined by supply. And I think that's particularly relevant in the United States right now because we have been riding what people call a subpar expansion for a long time, and it has been. We've only averaged 2.2% real GDP growth so far. But what people forget is the underlying story may actually be a little bit worse than that because that 2.2% growth has been fueled in part by reducing the unemployment rate from about 10% at its peak down to about 4%. Once the unemployment rate stops falling, then you get into the long run. And what we're seeing when we look at both the growth in productivity and the factors that drive productivity, and also the growth in the labor force, that it is going to be very hard for the United States to even achieve 2% growth in the long run. While in the short run, we may think we get 3% growth in 2018 and perhaps early 2019. As we go into 2020 and beyond, we think we're going to see a return to this much slower pace of growth. And that's really one of the key insights of a long-term process is to try and look at what can we achieve in the long run, never mind the cyclical forces in the short run. And I think within that, we'd emphasize the demographic story probably more than anything else. If we think about the long-term track record of the U.S., which was sort of a 3% real growth story until fairly recently, that growth rate was achieved with a labor force that was growing by one or one and a half percentage points per year. And as we project forward, we're looking at a labor force which is going to be lucky to grow at 0.5 percentage points per year. So the biggest swing factor between what happened in the past and what we're projecting in the future is really that availability of people. And it's really almost an ancient echo of the baby boom, because what happened was all the way through the 1930s and the early 1940s, the number of people born in the United States was less than 3 million per year. And then from 1947 until the mid-1960s, it was over 4 million. That was an enormous step upwards. But 65 years later, that is having a big impact on the U.S. economy because the number of people hitting 65, becoming eligible for Medicare and retiring, is huge. We've moved up to a new plateau of retirement with more people retiring. And that's really a drag, a long-term drag on U.S. labor force growth. So we've talked a lot about demographics in the U.S. And if we move over to Europe, you've actually revised upward your forecast for growth in Europe, which is surprising given that you've laid out your demographic concerns in the U.S. And our expectation is that there are even more concerns in Europe. So is this a base effect phenomenon, which is causing our forecast to be revised upward from prior years? Well, we've already had a pessimistic view about European labor force growth, and that's been embedded in the numbers in recent years. And as with many other economies, you've seen a gradual decline in our forecasts. What you're looking at in the euro area at the moment, though, are a couple of offsets to that process, one of which is that you've seen a fair amount of reforms undertaken within European labor markets. And that's having the effect of pulling in some people who were previously on the sidelines. And so you're looking at labor force participation in Europe rising, and that's giving you a little bit of a counterweight to the underlying demographic story. Another thing is just thinking about the starting point for the euro area economy, which has been weak. So David mentioned the fact that in the U.S. that slack has been taken up because the economy has been expanding now for nine years. In the euro area, you had a second recession in 2012, 2013. And so the unemployment rate has been very high until quite recently. And it's now falling rapidly, but it's still above what you would think of as a long-term norm. So in the euro area, part of the forecast that we're talking about is relative to that longer-term structural growth rate. This is an economy that can probably outperform that, at least at the margin, 
over the course of the next few years. So it's a combination of a little bit more optimism about the way that labor forces are going to evolve in terms of people participating in them over the medium term, and just a little bit of a weaker cyclical starting point than you're looking at in a place like the U.S. I mean, essentially what we're saying is there may be more slack in the European economy than we thought a year ago. And, you know, one other perspective on this is that in the U.S. we've had the unemployment rate fall to 4.1% without significant wage growth. And in Japan, we've seen the unemployment rate fall to 2.5% without significant wage growth. So it appears that you can actually push that unemployment rate down very low without hitting what economists call the narrow, the rate at which inflation takes off. But if that's the case, the eurozone, for example, with an unemployment rate of over 8%, has a long way to go. And that even parceled out over a 15-year period, it can have an effect on the growth rate. Let's think about current events. I know you've talked about the long-term nature of these expectations, particularly when you're trying to decide what's going to happen over the next 10 to 15 years. But certainly the starting point matters, Michael, as you just mentioned. So how do some of the things that we've encountered over the last year, things like Brexit or geopolitical events more generally, how do those impact your estimates? If it's going to affect the long-term assumption, it's got to affect one of the inputs to the long-term assumption. So Brexit's actually a reasonable example of a current event that can reverberate out over the medium to long term, because one of the key advantages that the UK economy has had in our process, the way we think about these numbers, one of the key advantages that the UK economy's had relative to some others is that it's had a relatively favorable demographic story fueled by immigration. And so to the extent that the Brexit process is partly about a policy change that could result in greatly restricted immigration to the UK over the course of the next years, then that can affect the medium to long-term demographic story, labor force story, and then growth. And so the UK now switches with the euro area in terms of the rank order of our major economies in medium-term growth, partly for that reason, a little bit more optimism about the way that labor forces are evolving in the euro area, a little bit less optimism in the UK. So that's an example of a story that can have that longer-term implication. Many other geopolitical events we would think of as affecting primarily demand or business confidence, things like that in the short term. And then you think about those things Mm -hmm. as washing out over the long term. But actually that issue of immigration is also very important for the United States because the United States has always had a healthy growth in the number of people coming into the country, which has actually supported this economic growth. In fact, looking at Census Bureau projections over the next 10 years, the population aged 16 to 64 is only supposed to grow by about three-tenths of a percent per year. But remarkably, 85% of that growth is going to come from people who are not born in this country. So when we think a little bit about the political tide about will we have more immigration or less immigration, if we actually choose to have less immigration, that does have a meaningful impact on the long-term growth rate of the U.S. economy. Immigration is obviously something of a zero-sum game at the level of the global economy, but it has significant implications for relative growth rates about where those labor forces are growing and where they're shrinking. I guess it's a little bit beside the point, but I'm not sure if it's quite a zero-sum game because as people come to an economy with a lot of capital, with the infrastructure in place, I've got to believe just as if a Chinese worker moves from the rural areas into the cities, they're more productive. So a lot of people coming to developed economies in the United Kingdom, the United States can actually be more productive for the global economy. You mentioned China and certainly in the last question, the interconnectedness of the global economy and how that factors into your forecasts. Let's talk a little bit about emerging markets and what our expectations are there. In aggregate, growth expectation is 4.5%. Investors are often talking about 
China versus India and the population growth there. And so how do you think about comparing and contrasting these two huge populous nations and the growth path within those? When we think about the EM forecasts in general, there's a little nuance relative to the developed economy forecast. Because in the developed economies, what you're basically assuming is that total factor productivity growth, which is driven largely by technological change, that's probably going to be fairly uniform across the major developed economies. They're all operating more or less at that global technology frontier. So if there's an innovation in the U.S., it'll pass through to Japan, the U.K., the euro area relatively quickly, or vice versa. The emerging economies, the story is really much more about convergence toward that technological frontier. They're operating away from that technological frontier. The capital stocks are smaller. Technological change happens, but it's a derivative of what's happening elsewhere. And really, a lot of what's going on in the emerging economies is about taking best practices from developed economies and implementing them locally. And so a lot of the story with the emerging economies, that faster growth, is really about catch-up to those developed economy income levels. Demographics are much less of a factor than you might assume. It's true that in aggregate, population growth in the emerging economies is faster than in the developed economies, but not by a lot. And you've got some places like China, for example, where the working age population is already flat to maybe even starting to shrink a little bit. So it's really much less about demographics and much more about convergence. If you think about India and China as two examples of that, well, India has the lowest per capita GDP of any of the emerging economies in our sample. The room for convergence is just larger there. India is sort of where China was 10 or 15 years ago. As China has begun to converge, its growth rate is slowing a little bit. That's partly about demographics, but it's also about that narrower gap. When we look at the emerging economies, we see that there's a rough inverse relationship between today's per capita GDP level and our expected growth rate over the course of the next 15 years. Yeah, and I think, again, looking under the hood of these forecasts, one of the things that is in emerging markets we're seeing is Yes, we get stronger growth in the developed world, but particularly, for example, in the case of China, that growth tends to fade over the forecast horizon just because they're getting richer and they're using more of that potential. They're a bigger part of the global economy. They're probably helping the global economy overall grow more than they had done when they were a smaller part. But in each of these major economies, there's something of a slowdown, a tapering of that growth rate. And that's fine, but it's just the inevitable result of getting a little bit richer. The other thing that I think you know we do have in the back of our minds a little bit is a lot of this is assuming, you know, we're not putting in business cycles. And there's some tendency to assume if nothing goes wrong, and we have to sort of fight against that, realizing that lots of things go wrong. So we don't want to put in the most optimistic forecasts across the board and what these economies could do. Because as we've seen, in many cases, there are geopolitical disruptions, there are political disruptions, there are other types of problems that we just didn't anticipate. And we want to make sure that our overall long-term forecasts are sort of grounded in reality. So breaking away from specifically India and China and thinking more broadly about the emerging world, there must be differences between the growth expectations of more technologically oriented economies versus more agriculture or resource intensive. Anything to say about some of the other countries besides India and China? I think when we look at the granular inputs into these numbers for the emerging economies, one of the things that we see that really distinguishes one from another is the starting point in terms of the human capital stock. So you think about a country like Russia, for example. Well, it's a commodity-intensive economy, 
But it's also an economy where the population has actually been quite well educated for many decades. There's not a lot more upside there if you think about the, to put it crudely, the quality of the workforce and how that's going to evolve. In South Africa, by contrast, you had official government policy for many decades was to keep a significant chunk of the population not educated. And so now that you've changed the circumstances there and you're incorporating that growth and improvement in the human capital stock over time, that's a plus for an economy like a South Africa or a Brazil, for example, or in India, relative to an economy like a Russia or a Korea or a Taiwan, where the educational standards rose earlier and are now leveling off. And again, it's hard for us to be completely insensitive to policy directions in these countries. If a country is moving towards a more free market, entrepreneurial type of policy, it's easier for them to grow than if they are hugging on to their commodity production and uh, suppressing the growth of democracy or free enterprise. So that does, to some extent, color our views of the potential for these emerging market economies. So let's shift gears a little bit. Talked a lot about growth. Let's talk a bit about inflation. So long-term global inflation forecasts are for fairly contained inflation. And you note a bunch of factors here, policymaker commitment, history of inflation running through narrow channels. Can you give us a little bit more color on what's behind those inflation forecasts? I think there are, again, some sort of conflicting forces here. The central assumption we make is that we start from a point where the global economy is seeing it's in good shape and labor markets are tightening and the economy is moving towards its potential. And that should be somewhat inflationary. And central banks have set relatively modest targets for what they want to achieve in terms of inflation. And they've actually been quite good at getting there. So our first assumption is, yes, the economy is heating up, but we think that central banks will be able to get to their targets on inflation, but probably not overshoot in a significant way. Because there are other issues, things like information technology, global competitiveness, global trade, which tend to hold inflation down. And so we're hoping for a relatively hot economy in terms of high resource utilization in the global economy over the next 15 years. But even in that case, we don't think that inflation is likely to go much above what central banks are looking for just because of the way inflation has evolved around the globe in the last few decades. One of the lessons of the last... 30, 40 years or so is that monetary policy works in the sense that if you have a central bank which is committed to a particular target, has political independence, and is willing to use all of the tools at its disposal to aim toward that target, you'll basically get there or thereabouts over time. And we saw, for example, in the early years of the current expansion, unemployment rates were extremely high in places like the U.S. and the euro area and elsewhere. And that actually put less downward pressure on inflation. We didn't get an episode of deflation other than in Japan, which is sort of a case apart. We didn't get a major episode of deflation anywhere in the developed world, despite all of that economic trauma. And some of that, we think, is about the anchoring of inflation expectations the central banks have been able to achieve over the course of the last decades. And we think that'll operate in the reverse direction as we see economies, you know, for example, start to overheat with very low unemployment rates. That same force should prevent inflation from running significantly hot relative to those targets. The one thing that, that I certainly am a little bit concerned about in terms of long-term outlook as a risk is that we have seen central banks take on more and more extreme positions in terms of bond buying, expanding the money supply, expanding bank reserves, and paid no penalty in terms of higher inflation from this. There may come a point where they overdo it. 
And so that is one of the risks is that if we had an overheated economy, expansionary fiscal policy and an expansionary monetary policy and inflation began to get going, then the sort of mindset of we don't have to worry about inflation, if that changes in the population in general, there is some risk there given very easy central bank policies. Let's talk about that for a moment. So the Fed and other central banks, as you rightly note, have expanded their balance sheets by over $11 trillion since 2007. What are the implications for inflation with this kind of move? Not too much in terms of CPI inflation at this point. Our forecast is that we'll get about 2.25% CPI inflation in the U.S. over this period. And I think it's worth noting that basically is on the Fed's target because the Fed looks at the headline personal consumption deflator and they are targeting a 2% number on that. And CPI runs a few tenths higher than that. So that's basically we're saying we're on target. I think there's a risk there that there's a huge expansion of balance sheets and unconventional monetary policies could cause inflation at some stage. But at the moment, we can't say we see it right now. I mean, we do need a broader definition of the inflation threat to the economy because it's clearly not showing up in wages or consumer inflation There is more of an increase in asset prices. We're not seeing huge asset bubbles, but we've certainly seen an increase in asset prices across the board. And so I think that the real risk of excessive money creation may be eventually in asset bubbles rather than in historically sort of the more normal inflation worry. That ties into the rest of the capital market assumptions in the sense that the overall process here begins with the economic forecasts. Then we think about what are equilibrium values for various market variables, such as bond yields and equity P.E. ratios and so on. And the starting point relative to those equilibria matter. So relative to what's an already fairly modest set of economic assumptions relative to long-term history, you've also got another headwind there, which is starting valuations for financial assets. And it's really the combination of those two forces that keeps the overall return assumptions looking rather poor by historical standards. Yeah, I mean, it's not that we see the glasses half empty. We've just got to remember that we've drunk six or seven full glasses to this point. And so investors should not feel thirsty. They've had very good returns. But that does mean that there's less in the glass at this point. Right. So there may be more in the glass in emerging markets then. We talked a little bit about faster growth expectations long term relative to the developed world. Should we also expect higher inflation expectations for the emerging world, given that we're starting with higher growth? It's not really about the higher growth per se, because we don't generally feel like in the long term there's that growth inflation trade-off. That's something which is more operative in the shorter term. But there are a couple of other distinguishing features about the emerging economies, one of which is that their income levels are lower, which, again, helps to result in the faster growth. But that also has the effect of pushing up incomes in particular in local services sectors, which are very low relative to incomes in places like the U.S. or the euro area. If you travel to a Brazil or a South Africa or an India, you're going to wind up paying about the same for goods. A pair of jeans or whatever will cost just about the same anywhere. It's really the price of those locally driven services that are much cheaper in developing economies. And as those economies converge and as those income levels rise, what you see is that prices for those services rise more quickly than is the case in the developed economies. And so you generally expect that these economies coming from lower income levels to begin with will run slightly faster inflation. You also have central banks that are 
perhaps less operationally independent than is the case for a central bank like the Fed. You have central banks that have perhaps demonstrated slightly less commitment to hitting particular inflation targets. So there's a range of factors which are related to the starting points for incomes, but it's less direct connection than just saying they grow faster and therefore there's more inflation over time. But I think it's important to note that, yes, emerging market inflation will be higher than in developed countries. But relative to recent decades, emerging market inflation will be lower. And that actually is very important for the global economy. The problem with global inflation is a little bit like the problem with American weather, which is that it's usually too cold in the north and too hot in the south. Usually inflation is too cold in developed countries and too hot in emerging markets. But if they can bring their inflation rates down through whatever forces to levels that are manageable year to year, that will provide support to their currencies and remove a lot of the risk to investing in those emerging markets. So I think a real cornerstone for emerging market progress in the future will be not having, you know, out of control inflation, but having, yes, inflation that's higher than developed countries, but really not that high relative to their own history. That's really one of the underlying stories of these numbers is that we are not projecting any kind of a return to the across-the-board EM turmoil that characterized, for example, decades like the 1980s. We do see that the adoption of broadly prudent financial policies, openness to trade and capital flows, and so on, gives you an environment where growth gradually converges, income levels gradually converge with those in the developed world, and you don't get those massive shocks, defaults, hyperinflation, and so on, that people think Mm -hmm. of as being associated with the emerging economies. And one small point that I think also feeds into this is that over the course of our forecast horizon, we do think the U.S. dollar will drift down a bit. And historically, a rising U.S. dollar has actually been problematic for emerging market currencies. If we have a slowly falling U.S. dollar, again, it can support those emerging market currencies, which is really very important for them controlling their inflation rates. We've talked about growth. We've talked about inflation, all of which have impact in financial markets and pricing of assets. How should our institutional clients be thinking about the long term and incorporating some of these views into the way they think about asset allocation? I think emerging markets is a key story here. If you think about what you're getting out of capital markets over the long term, that's got to be somewhat related to what you're getting out of the economies. And a forecast where EM growth is persistently above what you're seeing in the developed world without the kind of instability that characterized past decades, I think that's a clear incentive to think about international investing and in particular having a reasonably sized allocation to various kinds of EM-related assets. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's the curse of the starting point is we started at a point where we've had very good gains in asset markets, but as you sort of pencil in equity returns from developed countries and bond market returns even over the long run in developed countries, it becomes increasingly clear that you're going to have to think out of the box a little bit if you want to get anything close to the kinds of returns you're targeting. And maybe the first thing is you have to think a little bit about, you know, are these reasonable targets for your total return of portfolio? But to the extent that you try to hit those targets, you're going to have to be a little bit more inventive and a little bit more flexible to include various alternative ways of investing and take advantage of stronger growth overseas in the long run. And many of our Pension clients are also quite concerned about the path of rates, just given where they've been, where they're going. People are focused on funded ratios and how to close those gaps. We've talked about growth. We've talked about inflation, all of which are critical inputs to fixed income pricing. Mm -hmm. So any comment there on the path of rates or the impact that our long-term forecasts could have on where we think bonds are going? 
Well, I think if you look at, again, the way our process works, we wind up making the assumption that over the long term, an economy's equilibrium interest rate will be somewhere close to the economy's nominal GDP growth rate. And so an implication of that is we're talking about nominal growth rates that are significantly lower than what was achieved historically. That means that bond yields are also going to be lower. So if you think about where Treasury yields were on average in the post-war period, something like 5.5%, 6% probably for the 10-year point on the curve, we're unlikely to go back to that in an equilibrium sense. We're going to be below that. At the same time, we're sitting right now with a 10-year Treasury yield, which is noticeably low relative even to the modest expectations we've got for nominal growth. So rates are moving up, but they're not going back to where they were in the 1970s or 1980s. Yeah, to use a well-worn phrase at this stage, there is sort of a new normal that we're expecting. We're going to have to normalize to it, but it is a lower normal in interest rates. Now, of course, that can also mean a higher than normal average in terms of P.E. ratios in the long run for equities. It's just that once you reach those P.E. ratios or if you are at those P.E. ratios, the returns you can expect from equities going forward will be less than they have been in the past. Thank you for joining us on the Center for Investment Excellence. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today on the J.P. Morgan Center for Investment Excellence. CFA Institute members are encouraged to self-document their continuing professional development activities in their online CE tracker. If you found our insights useful, you can find more episodes on iTunes and on our website. Recorded on April 16th, 2018. For the purposes of MIFID II, the JPM Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs are marketing communications and are not in scope for any MIFID II and MIFIR requirements specifically related to investment research. Furthermore, the J.P. Morgan Asset Management Market Insights and Portfolio Insights programs, as non-independent research, have not been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research, nor are they subject to any prohibition on dealing ahead of the dissemination of investment research. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions, or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions, and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision, and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit, and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements, and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yield are not a reliable indicator of current and future results. J.P. Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of J.P. Morgan Chase & Company and its affiliates worldwide. This communication is issued by the following entities. 
in the United Kingdom by J.P. Morgan Asset Management UK Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. In other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe, SARL. In Hong Kong, by JF Asset Management Limited or J.P. Morgan Funds Asia Limited or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Asia Limited. In Singapore, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Singapore Limited, co-reg number 197-601-586-K, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets Singapore Private Limited, co-reg number 201-120-355-E. In Taiwan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Taiwan Limited. In Japan, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Japan Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association, and the Japan Securities Dealers Association, and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number, Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330. In Korea, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Korea Company Limited. In Australia, to wholesale clients only, as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, CTH, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia Limited, ABN 551-438-32080, AFSL 376919. In Brazil, by Banco J.P. Morgan S.A., in Canada for institutional clients' use only, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Canada, Incorporated, and in the United States, by J.P. Morgan Distribution Services, Incorporated, and J.P. Morgan Institutional Investments, Incorporated, both members of FINRA, SIPC, and J.P. Morgan Investment Management, Incorporated. In APAC, distribution is for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Japan, and Singapore. For all other countries in APAC, to intended recipients only. Copyright 2018, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. All rights reserved.